you okay? Yeah, I just started sliding. Everyone has a story to tell. About the bump of the night, the monster under their bed, or even the man they see in the rearview mirror window as they drive away. The only thing that separates everyone's stories are which ones are real and which are fake. Welcome to Two Spooks, One Lie. Hello, spooky friends. My name is Ash. My pronouns are they, them. I'm here with Kat. Kat, what are your pronouns? My pronouns are she, her. Perfect! And Kat, you've got some three true crime stories for us, right? Yep. I have three true crime stories, but the trick is one of them is a lie. And then I have to try and figure out which one is the truth. Which brings us back to last week's episode. So if you've not listened to last week, go give it a listen real quick. Ooh, I'm excited! We're going to find out if you were... We're correct. Now, a little refresher. We had three stories. We had the lady in blue, we had the incorrect will, and then we had Dolly the helpful maid. And you had guessed... That the incorrect will was the lie. And you are ready. I'm ready. (laughs) You were incorrect. No! What? You were incorrect. No! So that one on the scoreboard stays a one. And do you know what? Well, you know what? We're still tied, so. <laughs> okay, give me the sass. Do you want to know which one was the fake one? Well, yes. <laughs> Are you ready for this? Fake one was Dolly. What? So. But you had so much background. The in itself is real. All of the history I told you is real. Dolly does not exist. Damn. The Graham family does not exist. Damn. No one in that story existed. None of the workers that reported did not exist. Does that mean the cute little heart was real from the lady in blue? Yes. That's actually. all I want to know. No, that was real. That was real. I lied. I also wanted to be right, but I just wanted the heart <laughs> to be real. <laughs> it was real. That was real. But Dolly was not real and the incorrect was real. And I did some more digging. Because we were really confused about all of the hints he left for his will, right? Yeah. Because it was like a maze. Well, I got thinking, there's got to be a reason for it, right? So I did some more research. Are you ready for this? They actually compared the two wills, the one that he had originally wrote and the one they found, and they don't think the handwriting's the same. Oh, my God. They think the second... So Marshall's wife is a fucking liar. No, Marshall's wife would actually be right. Oh. <laughs> So quick to attack Sorry, Marsha. Wait, her name's not Marsha. Embarrassing. Um, No, so the first one they think is real, and that was actually his handwriting. And he did give everything to Marshall. They think the second will was forged. And they think that the brother Pink actually rewrit the will and had to come up with this crazy, bizarre story of how he found the will. And that's why there were all these goose eggs and chasing and everything. Because he, he couldn't just show up with the will, right? And be like, look, I found the right one. He had to be like, my father appeared to me in a dream. Well, I think that means I was technically right. No, no it doesn't. It was still real. <laughs> well, the ghost wasn't real, so. It's just no, a- you still get one. No, uh-uh, you're at a one. <laughs> Don't even try and. No. <laughs> but. Um, Damn. <laughs> they think it is very likely that Pink orchestrated the discovery of the will. So he didn't just, like, show up with a random will. But the second will was accepted in court. Okay. (laughs) Actually, do you want to see the... Look, I found a picture of James, the father, as gravestone. That's kind of sad. So just more proof that it was, in fact, 
real. You're like, I have to prove this. I know Kat's going to fight me. (laughs) There was no ghost. I mean, maybe there was. Maybe the handwriting was just a little sloppier because he was getting older. And maybe he did want to have his sons go through this bizarre adventure. But. I mean, anything's possible. You're right. But it is very likely that Pink actually forged the second will. Damn. So, well, I mean, we can give you half a point if you really want. No, it's fine. I accept my loss. (laughs) Okay, be all salty like that, fine. I'll take back my offer for half a point. Well, I didn't want it anyway, so... So now we're tied one-to-one. Until today. You think, you think I'm going to get it wrong? It's possible. So I guess that'll lead us into the very first story, right? Yes. So our first story is titled The Sleepwalking Killer. Ooh. I thought we were going to say Skinwalker, and I was about to leave. I do not <laughs> no. want to hear a story about Skinwalkers. But no. Sleepwalker, I guess that's not any better, but you know. So I'm just going to dive in. The Folleters met in high school, then married in college, and both continued their education. The who's? Wait, what? The Folleters. That's, um, it's Scott and Yarmila Folleter. Folleter? Yeah, that's her last name. Okay, you can't change a last name, so I'm not going to make fun of it. The Folleters met in high school, then married in college, and both continued their education. They graduated with master's degrees. Scott became an engineer, and Yarmila became an assistant teacher. Scott described their marriage as happy, mutually faithful, and loving. There was no history of abuse or any financial problems. In fact, by January of 1997, the couple had already started planning for retirement, and they were both very active members of the Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints Church. Oh, oh, Kat, you've lost me. I'm lost, man. I was like, okay, good for them. Good. I was about to literally say good for them. You know, they're doing great, but no hate. <laughs> Just going to preface, I have very bad history with the Latter-day Saints. Um, very bad history. So left a little bitter taste in my mouth, but you know, maybe they're really good people. That's what everyone says, and everyone said the pair was a devoted couple and they loved each other deeply. Marcy, a friend of Yarmila's, actually said Yarmila never expressed any dissatisfaction in their marriage. She would even pry by asking her, come on, there's got to be something that drives you nuts that he does. And Yarmila would smile and say, nope, he's a really good guy. I mean, good for her to be in such a happy marriage. Um, did you say, like, where this is located? In Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, so not Utah, where most of them reside. Yes, Arizona. not Utah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, good for her to be in such, like, a happy marriage. Because you're right, like, there are going to be issues and stuff in marriages. Like, yeah. couples counseling is but there But even if there were issues, it seems like the couple was very mature and handled it privately. Right, and didn't, like, boast about it or talk shit mm-hmm. by, about their partners like we do. Um, <laughs> fuck men. Um, and then the day of January 17th, 1997, Scott actually went to his job where he worked as an engineer from Motorola. And I just want you to let you know, because this may come into play later, he worked very long hours. He averaged about 60 to 80 hours a week. Holy shit. 60? Damn. I can hardly do my 40 hours a week and I want to die. Oh, my God. I know. And then he came home for dinner after working (laughs) that day. After dinner, Scott actually taught morning religious education classes, and he started to prepare his lesson for the following day. Around 9 p.m., his wife, Yarmila, who he called Yarm, so from now on I'm going to call her Yarm because her name is very hard to say. (laughs) 
um, asked him to fix their pool filter. He attempted to fix the pool filter, but it was dark and late, and he ultimately gave up. He went inside to find his wife asleep on the couch. He gave her a kiss goodnight, whispered, I'll fix the pool tomorrow, then went upstairs to bed. Oh, that's really sweet. Okay, two things. One, it's really sweet that he was, like, talking to her to sleep, right? But two, why didn't he carry her ass up to bed? That's what I was thinking. <laughs> like, okay, I get it. I do. People can be heavy, and maybe he's tired, and he works long hours, but also, like... I know, kind of weird. Come on, man. But also sweet, I guess. (laughs) You know what? We'll just say it's sweet. We'll just... We're going to ignore not carrying your wife up to bed, because I wouldn't carry anyone up to bed. So I get it. But I also wouldn't attempt to fix a pool filter to begin with. You know what? We're going to call him sweet. She loved him, clearly. Sweet. He said he was exhausted that night and crashed in bed. Uh, between 9.30 and 10 o'clock p.m. This is the last thing he remembers until he was standing at the foot of his stairs in his pajamas while police officers approached him with their guns drawn, demanding that he kept his hands visible and get to the floor. He complied with the police officer's wishes, although he was completely and utterly confused. Yeah, that's got to be really alarming. You're, like, having sweet dreams about your wife, and you're like, oh, i got to fix the pool filter. And all of a sudden, the police are like, bitch, get down. Like, I would be fucking terrified. Yeah, I, I think anyone would be. And the police then asked Scott if anyone was in the house with him. And he said, yes, my wife, Yarm, and my two children. And they did have two children. Um, one was 12, and the other was 10. So fairly young. Yes, fairly young. The police officers were stunned by his response, though, because by this point, they'd already found Yarmila's dead body in their blood-soaked pool. Oh, my... Wait, so she was in the pool? Yeah, in the pool, dead. And she was just on the... Oh, my God, that's... Okay, that's really alarming to also find out. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you're, like, sleeping, you love your wife, you love your kids. Police bust in, they're like, yeah, someone's dead, by the way. Exactly. And what led police to the scene was actually Greg Coons, Scott Folliter's neighbor. He called police after him and his then-girlfriend, Stephanie Raidhead, heard moaning or crying coming from the Folliter residence around 10 o'clock p.m. And what did he say he got home and bed? He said he went to bed around 9.30 or 10. That's a little weird. I guess that wouldn't be... It is a little weird, but honestly, I don't pay that close attention to time, so I could say it was around 10, but really it's like midnight. No, I totally (laughs) get what you mean, and also, like, if he works long hours, he's gonna pass the fuck out and not wake up to the smallest of sounds, and there are, like, heavy-ass sleepers, but I feel like, I don't know, if the neighbors can hear those noises, I feel like they're really loud, you know what I mean? Exactly. But I guess he could be a heavy sleeper, he was really good to his wife, I'm giving this man the benefit of the doubt. Do not and make me regret it. You may regret oh, it. Oh, shit. Kuhn testified that he went outside to investigate and saw a woman lying on the ground moving slightly. Originally, he thought that she had just passed out drunk, but then he saw Scott drag the woman to the pool, roll her into the water, and hold her head underwater. Okay, few things. Few things. If I were their neighbors, I feel like I would know they were heavily religious. That's what I thought, too, but so maybe he was a new neighbor. Maybe, because, like, if they're heavily religious, more likely than not, they're not going to be drinking, you know what I mean? Or drinking to that extent, unless there's an issue. Yeah, plus I feel like if someone was a heavy drinker, you would have seen their notice behavior like this before. Right, it's not just a one-time, oh, yep, they're drinking and stumbling all over their backyard. And also, seeing him dress... 
That's weird to me. Like, I don't I don't know why. <laughs> that's such a weird detail. And I feel like, why wouldn't you evacuate your home and call the police? You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, okay, I'm I don't still, really know what he was thinking. I'm still rooting for our man. I'm still <laughs> rooting for him. Maybe he did kill his wife and drown her in the pool. But, like, it just, all the little details seem a little weird to me. They are pretty weird, and they get weirder. On the 911 call, Greg said the husband just threw, I believe, his wife into the pool. It looked like he was holding her head underwater. The dispatcher asked if the couple was fighting. Greg said, I don't know what the problem is. I don't know. It's weird, and I'm concerned. Which anyone would be. I'm sorry. That's just such a polite way to put it. I don't know, but I'm concerned. While I'm on the phone, I'd be like, I'm freaked the fuck out. Get someone over here. When Phoenix police officers Joel Tranter, Stephen Stanowix, and Kemp Layden arrived, they found Yarmila floating lifeless in the pool. There was a substantial amount of blood. The police officers pulled her out, but she was already gone. I've never seen a shark attack, but to me, it was reminiscent of a shark attack. Officer Tranter would later explain Holy when shit. talking about the scene. So, like, was her body, like, mutilated and shit? Um, she was stabbed. And then drowned. Damn, okay, wow. One officer stayed behind to tend to Yarmila, while the other officers approached the house. As they were approaching, they heard Scott follow her moving around upstairs. Officer Layden rushed in, pointed his gun at Scott, and said, get to the ground. That is weird that he could be heavy enough sleeper for his wife to be stabbed and drowned, but awake when the police are just walking in? That is a really weird detail. It is really weird. But I mean, it could be coincidental. It could be, but it is really, really weird. And after Scott told them that his wife and children were in the home, they already knew Yarn was dead, but they searched the house to make sure the children were okay. They did find both children peacefully asleep. They then woke them up and informed them that their parents got into a fight and their mom was dead. That is, okay, that's weird. That's weird to me. I feel like you would want to evacuate the children, get them to a safe space, and then slowly let them know and not just be like, hey, wake up, wake up, your mom's dead, just get out of here. Like, <laughs> they're kids and they're just waking up. Yeah, I feel like that could have so, been handled better, but... either police negligence? Scott was dragged away in handcuffs and brought in for questioning. He said none of it felt real. He wasn't even fully convinced his wife was dead until he was in the interrogation room. A homicide detective interrogated Scott. He hammered him for any details, but Scott repeatedly said he couldn't remember. He never explicitly denied harming his wife, but consistently said he couldn't remember what had happened, which is still his story to this very day. Okay, that's really weird, right? Very weird. Like, if... I always bring myself into these examples, but let's say you you die, Cal. Let's say you're Why is it always me who dies? Why can't Ryan die, your fiance? <laughs> because he's gonna be a firefighter. He can't die. Um, what if you okay? If you're dead and the police come in and they ask me, I'm not gonna be like I don't remember. I'm gonna be like, what the fuck? I don't know. Like I was sleeping. So I feel like maybe he did do it, and he's trying to play it off as like he was asleep or he was drunk or, and that's why he's saying he didn't remember. That's it possibility and um, the homicide detective actually even pointed out there there was blood on his neck and scott was appalled because he had no clue it was even there then scott was even more shocked when police told him what the neighbor had seen 
John Norman, who actually conducted this interrogation, said, I'm not going to buy his story when I have an eyewitness watching him drown her. No, this story was hogwash. The only thing I believed about this story was his name was Scott Folliter. I'm confused. I w- Me too, honestly. <laughs> I wish, if this, if this is a real story, I'd hope they have, like, interrogation tapes, because I'd love to watch it to see, like, his reactions to all of it. Because you can't, you can't, like, fake a certain level of shock and disgust and surprise, and I feel like he would have those reactions at being told of the witness and the blood on his neck and shit like that. So it'd be fascinating for me. And I would it. think that the homicide detective would be able to tell when someone's actually shocked, but the homicide detective says he doesn't believe him. And I mean, it can be hard to say, and, and as an outsider, it's a lot easier for us to look at it and look into it further, but for him, he's trying to solve a murder, you know? Ultimately, the prosecutor sought the death penalty and charged Scott Folliter with first-degree murder. Originally, Scott's defense planned on pleading not guilty by reason of insanity until his mother and sister remembered Scott used to sleepwalk. So that's going to be his defense is sleepwalking. Yes. His mother described several times where he would come down the stairs fully dressed and ready for school at midnight. His mother, Louise Wilcock, can recall an instance where he was about 15 or 16 years old and he came downstairs fully naked. And Laura Healy, his sister, recounted an instance where he was 20 years old and she encountered him sleepwalking in the kitchen, headed towards the back door. She tried to stop him from going outside and he grabbed her by the shoulders and tossed her. He looked angry, almost demonic, she would say. So, but the wife had no reportings of this, right? No, none. And in fact, police officers, normally if there's domestic violence, you know, they're called to a scene frequently. They had never been called to his house before. So that's really weird to me that the family's like, yeah, he's had these incidences before, but he's never had them with his wife. Nothing that she would have deemed weird. Or even if she did, maybe she never told anyone about it. Right, but that, I feel like that's something you would mention in passing to friends, but maybe yeah. that was just... Because my ex used to sleepwalk, and I think I told you about that. Yeah, maybe she was more private than we are, which is entirely possible. But, I don't know, that's just really weird to me that he would do it in such dramatic ways as a kid that his family would remember, and nothing like that happened with his wife that was reported. But I've also heard that sleepwalking is more common when you're a kid, so maybe it was more frequent back then. Yeah, but then why was this grown-ass man sleepwalking and murdering his wife in his sleep? Well, we'll find out, maybe. (laughs) Um, His lawyer actually ended up building a case around this. They claimed he was sleepwalking during the attack, but even Scott Folliter thought this was far-fetched. He said the defense had no basis in reality, it was complete bullshit, and he even called it a Twinkie defense. Damn, okay, man. Like, sure, I don't believe it, but okay. That, that's going to be hard to prove, too, though. Like, to a court, you've yeah. got to be like... And Scott is the one using this defense, and originally he didn't even want to use it. But after con- consulting sleep experts and undergoing a sleep study of his own in the Arizona hospital, Scott decided to proceed with this defense. He suffered from a sleep disorder known as so- somno- somnobilism. Somnophilia? somnambulism okay basically it's a medical term for sleepwalking (laughs) 
This wasn't the first time that this defense was used. In fact, in 1982, also in Phoenix, a man successfully used this defense after he stabbed his wife 26 times, which I thought was relevant to share. Holy shit. So if I end up murdering you, I'm just going to say I was sleepwalking. Well, now you can't because you just said that in a podcast. So you just fucked yourself. Well, I'm the one who edits these, so (laughs) no one will ever know. The world's leading sleep experts, Dr. Roger Broughton and Dr. Rosalind Catwright, both were um, testifying in trial, and both stated he could have seen her as a threat if she disturbed him while he was sleepwalking. And two of Scott's cellmates testified to him sleepwalking, and both of his children actually took the stand and informed the jury that they had a happy life with loving parents. And I think it's so sad to ask two children to do that. So it's so sad they even had to be put in that situation. And they were, what, 10 and 12? 10 and 12. Jesus. Although young. the trial was actually two years later, so 12 and 14. That's still young to have to go against your father and try and... Because... Well, they're actually on their father's side. Which is fair, but if they have persecuted... Pros- prosecutors? Yeah, there how, are prosecutors. But they're going to, like, try and interrogate these children, right? And try and make them slip up, which is just horrible to me. I... I still don't buy it. How can you stab someone and drag them out to your pool and then dip their head and force it underwater while asleep? I don't know. But during the trial, Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Philip Keene actually testified that Yarmila was stabbed 44 times. So, 44? 44 times. So this man was either horrible person or he was sleepwalking and just was like yeah i'm making bread i gotta stab this bread what (laughs) and most of these wounds were defensive but some fatal the prosecutor asked um scott while he was on the stand explain to me that you're stabbing your wife 44 times she's screaming and you're moving about how is it that a tiny alarm on your watch can wake you up but her screaming can't yeah no that's a good point which is the same question you're basically asking which like I get it. People are heavy sleepers. Maybe she was being murdered downstairs and he didn't hear it. Blah, blah, blah. But being the murderer and stabbing her over and over and over again, no matter how long of hours you've worked, that's gotta wake you up. And Scott answered, it didn't always wake me up and I'm not a sleep doctor. I can't explain the difference, sir. A sleep expert, Lori Leadley, actually speculated on the case later, saying it would be very difficult to actually wake somebody up when they're sleepwalking because they're in a very deep state of sleep. She agreed it should have woke him up, but in an unconscious mind, we have no idea what's going on. Okay, but I've slept walk before. Like, I have as a kid. Mm-hmm. I used to pee in cupboards. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is not compared to murder. But, like... There's a difference between a deep sleep and sleepwalking and a woman screaming for her life as you murder her. Yeah, and even Lori Leadley, the sleep expert, she says that she believes that Scott does have a sleep disorder, but omitted episodes usually last about 30 minutes. And Scott has about 50 minutes he can't remember. So... So maybe he woke up, realized he had started stabbing his wife, and was like, better continue. I don't know. This is so weird. She said it's possible, but the timing of the events and somebody in a deep sleep through these events, she finds unlikely. So even though she was like, yeah, he does have a disorder and it is possible that he doesn't wake up, there's... It's very unlikely that his story is right. Yeah, because it's unlikely it would last as long as it did. 
And um, there are more things that he actually did which are very specific, which I find, even I find hard to believe. Um, on cross-examination, actually brought in, which was one of his sleep experts testifying on his behalf, acknowledged it was unusual for a sleepwalker to carry out so many specific actions during one single episode, too. So, basically, he has a bunch of sleep experts, and they're saying that he does sleepwalk, but even these experts are like, mm, it's kind of unlikely, but, like, it could have happened. You, literally, they're on the side, they're like, do you think he sleepwalks? Yeah. Do you think he should have woken up? Yeah. Like, I... They're like, technically, yes, he could have. Yes, but again, it is really hard to wake up a sleepwalker, and a sleepwalker is prone to violence if they're, like, if somebody disturbs them when they're sleeping. Yeah, but 50 minutes and 44 stab wounds and drowning in the pool. Apparently. That's a lot more than just violence while sleepwalking. And Richard Botson, another sleep disorder expert, said violence during sleep is extremely rare, but did mention instances of sleepwalkers stepping out of upper story windows, throwing children out of windows, and driving cars. Did you just say throwing children out of windows? Yes. It, it has been, there have been sleepwalkers who have done it. I'm sorry, I have a cat attacking me, but just, like, they grab a child, I'm using the cat as an example, in their sleep, and this child is screaming and, like, squirming, right, and they just throw them? Yeah. The cat's fine. Right I don't away. think it's necessarily, like, exactly like that. But, yes, sleepwalkers have done it. Okay, that is, like, interesting to me. Like, I don't think... This defense seems very, like, wish-washy to me with how many times he stabbed her and the fact he dragged her to the pool and stuck her head underwater. But it is interesting to me that there have been cases of violence as sleepwalkers. Mm-hmm. And all of the experts who testified at trial stated... Again, that it was possible he was sleepwalking, and she tried to wake him up, and he perceived her as a threat and went primal. Yeah, but 44 times? And the prosecutors, they actually tried to paint the marriage to be not as good as the couple let on. They stated that Scott wanted more children and that Yarm didn't. They also claimed that she was unhappy with her family's Mormon faith. And some newspapers reported that she was found without her wedding ring. Even with all of that... That's no, that's no excuse for murder, for one. For two, I'm, like, really conflicted. Because you have the side that's like, yeah, he was sleepwalking, so he thought she was a threat. I don't believe that. 44 times. 44 times, and then drowning her. That is a lot for a quote-unquote threat. And get this, there's more. Okay, but for a threat, you're not going to stick around, right? You're going to, like, defend yourself and get the fuck out. So 44 I think it depends on the person. Any person is not going to stab 44 times and drown in a pool. I'm sorry. But, like, <laughs> if you do, uh-uh. And there's more you said? There's next? more. The prosecution had witnesses of their own that they used on, to help guide their case against Scott. Greg Coons, the neighbor who didn't see the initial attack, testified to seeing Yarm lying on the ground near the pool, Scott walking through the house, turning lights on and off, wringing his hands, putting on gloves, then rolling his wife into the pool and holding her head underwater. So yeah, I was asleep, stabbed her 44 times, put on some gloves, turned lights on and off, and then drowned her. Apparently. That's and get this, a detective who was on the scene that night testified that he found bloody clothes in a food container as well as a bloody hunting knife in the spare tire storage area of his car. So there's no way this man did it while sleepwalking. That's what I meant by earlier when I said there were specific events that even the sleep experts said were a bit strange. A bit strange? This is like... 
He's like, yeah, a demon took over my body. That's more believable than sleepwalking. Yeah, like I said, the evidence suggests that he hid his clothes, the murder weapon, and he only had a spot of blood on his neck. After stabbing someone 44 times, there would be way more blood on him, showing that he even washed up. No, it was in his sleep. Washing his face in his sleep. I can't believe... And changed clothes. You know what? He could look me in the face and be like, a demon took over my body. I don't remember it. I'd be like, okay, yeah, I, I can somewhat believe that. Yeah, I can get behind that. But he cannot look me dead in the eyes. Oh, eye and sleep. get this. Oh, remember, more's more! Remember the pool filter? Yes, that he was supposed to fix. Yes. So sleepwalkers usually engage in normal activities when they're asleep until they're disturbed. Scott, in his defense, claimed that he was using the hunting knife in his sleep to try and fix the pool filter because that's what he was thinking about when he went to bed. You mean the pool filter that doesn't need a hunting knife to be fixed? Yes. And he was stabbing the pool filter 44 times to fix it? Well, I think he he's saying that he was going to fix the pool filter like in his sleep and he grabbed the hunting knife because he was asleep so he couldn't really tell what he was grabbing okay and then yarn must have tried to wake him he and in his sleep he attacked is what they're saying buy it because 44 stab wounds and hidden clothes later and the jury didn't buy it either. Ultimately, he is found guilty of first-degree murder. The jurors believed he may have stabbed her in his sleep, but that he was awake when he drowned her. No, I, that's what I was saying earlier. Is It's possible he woke up with the knife and the blood everywhere, but that doesn't explain the drowning, the hiding of the clothes, the cleaning up, you know, the changing mm-hmm. and everything. I was rooting for this man. Do you remember, like, 15 minutes ago, and I was like, hell yeah, man, loving man. The funny thing is, you just said almost verbatim what the juror said. One juror said, I think he could have been sleepwalking when he stabbed his wife. The possibility exists, but we don't know. There is no witness, but when he dragged the body, I think he woke up. He could have been sleepwalking, woke up, and saw what he had done and panicked, then drowned her. But that doesn't, that's not a good defense either, because it, my first reaction is not going to be, let's drown cat. That's going to be my second reaction. I'm kidding. Um, But I'm glad that they convicted him because I seriously have mixed feelings on this. Like, at first it was like, I guess sleepwalking could make sense, you know. But that's when I thought it was just a stab and dragging her to the pool. Not 44 stab wounds, drowning in the pool, changing the clothes, hiding the knife, and changing and washing. I know. It's so crazy. Um, And remember earlier how I said the prosecution sought the death penalty? Right. Well, ultimately, that decision actually falls on the judge. The judge received multiple letters, letters, letters asking for leniency. He was mostly swayed by the testimony of Scott's two children, who pleaded for their father to be kept alive because they hoped to be reunited with him one day. Even the victim's mother asked for Scott to be kept alive. The judge decided to sentence him with life in prison without the paucity possibility of parole sorry i can't talk today guys (laughs) that's heartbreaking and i mean yeah i guess it's better for him to be in jail because then at least their kids have one parent yeah but and he actually has a close relationship with his kids still they visit him they write him letters right now because of covid they can't really visit him in person but they still have video calls with him which, I don't blame them. They had one parent taken away from them, and then this other parent saying, no, I wasn't awake while doing it. I mean, yeah, you can 
not believe your father, but at the same time, if you grew up in a genuine happy home, that's there's no way you can rationalize that your dad murdered your mom. I know. Especially because, like, there's no clear motive. Right, it's... Because even the prosecutors saying that she, she he wanted more kids, she didn't, she didn't like the Mormon religion, like, that's not a reason to murder someone. I mean, there have been less reasons for other instances, but you're right, that's just... And then all of the Especially speculation... Especially such aggression. Right, 44 stat, and they're like, well, she wasn't wearing her wedding ring. That doesn't mean jack shit. Yeah. Like, I forget to put my ring on sometimes... Ryan told me today he lost all of his plastic rings. Like, what the fuck, bro? But, like, that... I feel so bad for those kids. I... Yeah, it's so sad. And Scott is still in prison to this day. Um, he practices meditation, gets plenty of sleep, and encourages anyone with a sleep disorder to seek treatment. He still hasn't forgiven himself fully, but he believes his wife would forgive him. He says that she knows more than I do about what happened that night, and she will actually know how I've conducted myself since then. I want to be sure that I'm still wor- worthy of her when we're, re- when we're reunited in heaven. I don't want to be back on his side, Cap, but that was kind of sweet. I, I mean, at least he's not, like, throwing a fit in jail, right? Where he's like, I didn't do this, you let me out. Oh, he's no. like, I guess I must have done it in my sleep, and I'm... Yeah, no, he's even said in other interviews and stuff that um, he believes he must have done it, but he has had, but he had no reason to do it. And he still doesn't forgive himself, and he still claims he has no memory of it. That's insane, because that is so bizarre, because the human brain... He even brain... says that she was the love of his life, oh. and still is. See, the human brain is so complex that we can't explain everything. So maybe, maybe for some reason he thought he was, like, hunting a bear or something, and that's why he changed clothes, and that's why he washed up. But it just seems so unrational for that to happen. I, irrational? Ir- yeah. Irrational. English is my first language. I, I mean, it's better for him to be in jail, I guess, because truly you don't know if he's going to act again. Yeah, and truly we still don't know what happened. <laughs> He doesn't even know. No one knows. Uh, you're right. You're right. I I want to say that one's real. And my reasoning behind it, I don't have one yet. I will think of one now. <laughs> well, you have until the end of the episode. But so far, I think that one's real. But maybe, maybe I'll change my mind at the end of the episode. So that story I'm going to refer to as the 44 stabs because that is the most, yeah, He's actually dubbed the sleepwalking killer in Arizona. 44 stabs. 44 stabs. Well, on to our next story we go. <laughs> if it doesn't involve 44 stab wounds, I don't want to hear it. It may or may not involve 44 stabs. If it does, I'm leaving. Find out. <laughs> next time on Dragon Ball Z. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Why did you just do an anime reference? What the fuck? Ew. Audience is going to be like, nerds. Wait, not nerds? What? Anyway, so Adam Finch grew up in Redmond, Washington. He went to school at Digapen Institute of Technology. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Digapen? It's D-I-G-I-Pen. P-E-N. So I'm going with Digapen. Digimon. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is he studied there at the Institute of Technology. Um, He was studying computer science and game design. 
Talia and his grandparents are filled with joy and pride when he got accepted into the school because it only has a 38% acceptance rate. This man is a murderer. <laughs> I don't want to say good on him because apparently they're going to turn into a murderer like last guy did. So, okay for him? <laughs> and the school was close to home as an added bonus, not to mention they were very excited for his future, of course. His family stated... <laughs> We're good. I'm fine. His family stated from a young age he showed interest in video games. His mother said when he was merely eight years old, he started mapping out ideas for his own games. He would even talk about his own ideas on how he could improve the games he was playing. Well, that's sweet. I know, kind of cute. And right? now he's going to turn into a murderer. I hate this. His mom, Talia, <laughs> left his father, Frank Finch, when Adam was five years old due to his abusive nature. Talia remembers that he would fight with her constantly, but it took her a while to muster up the strength to leave him. She left him one day after another one of their violent fights because she noticed his anger shifted towards Adam. She said that she knew that day if she didn't leave, then it was only a matter of time before he started abusing Adam physically as he did her. I'm glad she was able to get out. It's not easy to get out of situations like that. Yeah, definitely not. Although Adam was young when this happened and she put distance between Adam and his father at an early age, he had a very hard life. Talia recalls Adam having a hard time socially in school. He never made a lot of friends. He did well in his classes for the most part, obviously, because he got into that really good school, but he never made a strong connection with his peers. She believed that he was severely depressed from a young age, and she believes that he used his video games to escape the reality of the world. I don't like where this is going because I want to say like good for him and feel bad for him but I felt bad and good for the other guy and now we know he stabbed his wife 44 times I still cannot get over that I can 44 tell 44 okay anyway 44 times Ash so <laughs> but fairly okay I mean it's not like this is a super weird life you know a lot of kids go through the abuse of a parent and then the separation and it's okay to not be super extroverted in school <laughs> I thought you were looking at me. I was hoping you'd read my mind and tell me what I was trying to say. Oh, okay. I thought you were trying to say that I was too extroverted for a minute, and I was like... <laughs> Just a little bit, Cat. Just uh, a little bit. I was Just... like, all right then. No, no, totally kidding. But I mean, you know what? I can feel bad for him. Even if he murders people, I can feel bad for the child and him that had to go through that. So exactly. I feel bad for him, but I'm impressive that he was able to get in such a nice school. He had a very hard time sleeping when he was younger, Talia would tell investigators. He would not be a sleepwalker. He might be. Most of the time, he couldn't sleep at all, and when he could sleep, he would have nightmares. Then when he was a teenager, he started to sleepwalk. Oh my god, Kat! <laughs> and most of the time, it was harmless. He would walk downstairs and start pouring himself a bowl of cereal in the middle of the night. Talia wondered what he was doing up so late, only to walk into the kitchen and find him completely asleep. She would gently guide him back to the bed, and for the most part, there weren't any issues. Sleepwalkers are unpredictable, though, and one night she went to guide her teenage son back to his bedroom, only to be met by her son grabbing her by the throat. What is it with sleepwalkers and murder? I don't know. They're I, creepy, dude. Now I'm scared. Like, I'm going to wake up and Ryan's dead at my feet and I'll be like, I sleepwalk still? What the fuck? I just peed in cupboards when I was young. <laughs> um, she kicked him in the leg and then screamed in surprise as he calmly stared ahead, as if he didn't even realize the situation. She asked him about it the next day, but he had no memory of it. Finally, Talia 
enrolled him into counseling. Like the smart woman she was. We love a smart mom. And the nightmares ceased for a while. He still wasn't the most social, but he did make a couple of good friends. One of these friends being Brady Madden, who actually ended up going to college with Adam. In college, Brady worked to push Adam out of his shell. He told him that this school is full of people like us. It's our home. There is no reason to hide anymore. Oh. I know. What a good friend. We love a supportive friend like that. I wish I had one. Excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, he started bringing Adam to small get to Wow, get small get-togethers. <laughs> then things progressed, and they started to go to more parties on campus, and then they even started venturing to parties outside of the school. Okay, working their way up. Working their way up, which is where Adam actually met Grace Lewis. They met at a party that Brady, Adam, and some other college friends attended. Grace was the first girl who Adam ever actually sought out after. Brady said he'd never seen Adam actually go after a girl until then, and Grace was all about Adam. Ooh, two nerds. Two little Love nerds. Each other. The it's couple The couple went on one date and became inseparable. Aww. They even moved in together after two months of dating, which Aww. shocked everyone, but the pair seemed right for each other, so nobody questioned it. I'm not one to judge. I'm not going to say how soon I moved in with my now fiancé, but it was very quick. But that seems really, really quick. That's not like... It is really quick. Especially when they met at a party, when they were, you know, partying and stuff. And But I mean, maybe they felt they were a good fit for each other. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Adam's mom, Talia, said Grace was the opposite of my son. She thrived in social situations. She loved people, and she was full of adventure and life. I thought the two would be good for each other, and for a while, they were. At least everyone thought they were. The problem was that while while Adam's... Why did I almost call him Ryan? I almost <laughs> called him your fiancé's name. Please, no. I Honestly, don't he kind of sounds like Ryan. No! Though. No! <laughs> Anyway, while Adam's social life was blossoming, his grades started slipping, and he started falling into unhealthy habits, such as drinking. Adam still cared deeply about schooling, but it seemed like he was struggling to find a way to juggle everything. This was his first relationship, after all, and he wanted to make Grace happy. And he had a very hard time telling her no. So she got what she wanted when she wanted it. Basically, but this was his first relationship. I don't think he really knew how to be in a relationship so he kind of just wanted to do whatever he could to keep her happy especially since this was the first girl he actually had like hard eyes for i can imagine he was like this is the one yeah it's like those young kids in school it's like young puppy love so he's doing everything he can to please her he went wherever she asked he was hardly sleeping because he would go to parties with her then return home and frantically try to get his school work done Brady believes that Grace had no clue how much stress Adam was actually taking on because he didn't want her to know. He wanted to keep her happy. Which I feel like in some aspect we all want to keep our partners happy and thriving, but it sounds like he wasn't being honest with her, which can backfire, essentially. Yes, definitely can. He admitted to police later on that he didn't even know how bad it was for a while until Adam confessed it to him one night at a party. He told... Brady, how far behind he was falling in his classwork, he even asked Brady to help him cheat on one of his papers. And Brady was appalled because this did not sound at all like the Adam he knew. Rest in peace, nerd Adam. (laughs) 
rest in peace, nerd Adam. Uh, then Talia Finch and Brady actually took Adam out for dinner one night. It was the night of April 21st of 2003. They planned an intervention and they begged him to stop drinking and his mom actually opened up to him about his father. Oh, so she she genuinely just wanted the best for him. She really did. And she explained to Adam about how his father, Frank Finch, was an alcoholic and how he was abusive towards her. She told him a story of how his father once came home drunk and immediately started screaming at her for not doing the dishes. He even bashed a glass plate over her head so hard the plate shattered and then pulled her by her hair towards the sink and demanded she start the dishes right away, all while baby Adam was sitting in his high chair at the dinner table. And then Brady also explained to Adam how hard they worked to get into the school. He tried to get Adam to remember it, and he told Adam that he didn't want to see him throw it all away. This is so sad. I know. A lot of the stories, the people around him don't suspect it, or they don't step in, or they ignore it, and it sounds like they really, they wanted him to get better, and they wanted to help. They really did. They were trying so hard to help him. And Adam explained to them that the stress of school was too much for him. He also explained that he couldn't sleep and that his nightmares had started back up again. He claimed that the only thing that helped him was grace. And he also claimed that the alcohol helped, which no one believed because as we all know, alcohol doesn't help. Nope. Never helps. Never has. Never will. Makes me want to die and vomit everywhere. That is true. I've witnessed it. You've witnessed me vomiting everywhere? Yes. When? At a party. Where? In my house. Where I vomited everywhere? Yeah, my old house. Remember? You were sick for like two days. Oh, that's right. Where I actually slept walk there. Yeah. Oh my god, I just remembered that. Dun dun dun. <laughs> and that was really weird too because I kept like pacing and your ex said I was like threatening someone while I was asleep. But whoa, this is... Ah! <laughs> I just woke some memory in me. Okay, anyway, keep going, keep going. Panic attack. No, anyway. <laughs> now, you may be wondering why I'm telling you all this about Adam. Uh, no, I wasn't really wondering. I figured it would lead up to murder, but yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, let's just say I'm, like, yeah, I'm wondering, Kat, I'm wondering. Let's just say Adam got help and never murdered anyone. The end. Oh, that was a great story. I'm just kidding. No, oh, no, I'm not, oh, I, no. Oh, you wish. Anyway. <laughs> so, the reason I'm telling you all this is actually what Talia and Brady testified in court. Because the story did lead to murder. Shocking, I know. In no, a true crime so, podcast. Right? What? You're telling me three true crime stories and he murders someone? He oh. does. But this is actually being testified in court. Because one, a little bit after this intervention, Grace actually calls Talia, Adam's mom, for help. Because she's concerned about Adam. At this point, it seems like he's having a harder and harder time hiding everything from her because before he was trying so hard to keep her happy and I think all the stress had finally got to him and he was just having a very difficult time. He even told Grace that he was going to drop out of school and she was super worried about him because she loved him and she wanted the best for him just like everyone else did. Yeah, and she didn't know about all of the stress that was adding on to him because he didn't tell her about it. And no. he kept it a secret. No, he didn't tell her. So Grace ended up calling Talia, Adam's mom, to address these concerns. She told Talia about how 
Adam was threatening to drop out of school and about how he was having nightmares and he wasn't sleeping at all and about how he was drinking too much and she was trying to figure out what to do and she figured if anyone knew what to do it would be Adam's mom. Adam's mom and Talia ended up bringing Adam to see a doctor. They brought him to a doctor. The doctor's name is Jonathan Frankel and Jonathan actually prescribed him a medication. He was put for sleep. The medication is called Lunesta, which is a known sleep aid, um, but it's also a narcotic and can lead to dependency and it can be abused and it's addicting if used incorrectly. I'm not a doctor, but that's a weird choice considering his issues with alcohol and his past of his father having issues with alcohol. Exactly. What doctor in their right mind would prescribe this type of medication? Like I said, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if there's like better options or different options, but it does seem really, really weird that he would prescribe something so dependent when he has already addiction issues. Yeah, I've actually done research on this drug because of this, and you're actually not supposed to use it long term. It's supposed to be used as a short term sleeping aid. And even if you use it long term, you have to literally taper off of it. Wow. And the doctor didn't do any of that. Okay. No, the doctor just gave it to him like nothing. It's like the doctor just kind of was trying to get them out of his office, honestly, to me. Slap a bandaid on this situation. Say, yeah, here's a sleeping med. You're good to go. Exactly. And this wasn't even that long ago, so you wouldn't think a doctor would do something like that, but here we are. Then Grace came up with the idea to take Adam out on a camping trip. She thought it would be good for him to get away from the stress, and she told him that she wanted him to take some time to think before he dropped out of school. She didn't want him to do it on a whim. She said she would support him, but he needed to think on it. So he, she planned a trip, a little getaway for them. That's so sweet of her that she wasn't like, no, you're staying in school. This is what you need to do. But she was like, hey, you need to think on it, bro. Like, let's slow down there. Like, I'm here for you, but you got to think on it. Exactly. And then they ended up going to Three Forks, which is a campsite in Oregon, um, which is 400 and 4.8 miles away from Redmond, which is where they lived. And it's about a seven and a half hour drive. Very specific there, Kat. I know. I did my research. Look at you. I know. I'm proud. And then they ended up going there to for a little road trip and a little getaway because she thought it would help clear his mind, which would be a good idea. But also, why would you take someone who's having nightmares? I'm probably just because of all the true crime in the other cases. Just thinking, why would you take someone who used to sleepwalk and is having sleep problems and just got prescribed a sleeping medication camping? Maybe she that was the only thing she could think of at the time. Maybe maybe camping had helped her. So she thought, maybe it'll help him. I mean, I agree with you. It should not have been done, especially with all of the stress that he had been on. But I can see her point where it's like he needs to get away from it. And maybe that was the only output she could think of. It must have been. But I think everyone would agree this was a terrible idea. Apparently she's not her. Well, she can't agree because she ended up dying. Oh. Yes. <laughs> that pause. I, I thought you were going to say something. But anyway, so actually two nights after they were at the camping site, police got a call from Adam himself. It was the middle of the night and he called police officers and said, I need your help. I think I just killed somebody. Oh, no. He was crying. 
He was distraught. He was freaking out. And he was asking the police for help. And they came to the scene to find him covered in blood. They found a bloody knife on the scene. And they found Grace. And she had been stabbed 32 times. Oh, my God. 32? 32 times. I... What? Next you're gonna tell me he fucking hid his clothes. What the fuck? No, he didn't hide anything. In fact, he called police as soon as he woke up. He was very distraught and disheartened by the whole thing. That's a lot of stabs. Sleepwalking's crazy. Apparently that's common. Apparently? It's common yeah. enough for three stories. <laughs> um, But Adam was absolutely distraught. The police... Still, the police, I feel like, even sympathized with him. Officer Worley even said that he felt horrible, but he had to do his job and take the man in for questioning. I'm sorry, I'm, f- I'm floored right now. 44 stabs and then 32. The next one's going to be like 76. Oh my god. But could you imagine being in that police officer's shoes? Like, obviously this man regretted it. He called police. He's yeah. crying. He's covered in blood. That's very like, confusing because most people are going to try and hide it or they're not sympathetic. Oh, yeah. And, even the other sleepwalker, he said, I don't know what happened. And this guy is, like, sobbing. He doesn't know what's going on. And But it's, it's kind of clear what happened at the scene. Yeah, it's pretty clear to investigators. But they still had to charge him and do their job because that's the way the justice system works. You kill someone, it doesn't matter why, you go to trial. And they actually ended up charging him anyway. The prosecutors tried to charge him with first-degree murder, which everyone was appalled by. His mother, Brady, everyone, even his teachers, they were shocked because Grace and Adam were in love. And he, there was no way he wanted to hurt her. He even got help, went to see that doctor, got prescribed that medication. Yeah, and I feel like they had a pretty good look inside the relationship, unlike the last one where it seemed they were more private in some aspects. Like, the mom was obviously mm-hmm. involved. He had this friend that was close. So I feel like if there was issues, they would kind of know more. Yeah. But instead, they were like, yeah, they, they loved each other, and things were going okay. Like, he had the yeah. intervention, and they were working on it. Yeah, they were working on it. He went to see the doctor. But, and on trial, actually, luckily, they were able to bring all of this forward because there was actually documented evidence of his sleepwalking. He had seen a doctor before the attack. He had his mother who had seen him sleepwalk as a kid. He had Brady as a character witness. And the medication the doctor prescribed when looked into, it actually has severe side effects when mixed with alcohol. Oh my god. And it's one of those side effects, you know, like sleepwalking or yes it can actually increase sleepwalking well that would explain oh my god so not only can lunista increase sleepwalking in certain people but it also has serious side effects which include anxiety depression aggression agitation memory problems unusual thoughts or behavior thoughts of hurting yourself confusion and hallucinations so literally pretty much everything that happened literally everything that had happened that is super that doctor that doctor literally just screwed them all just because he wanted to get them out of his office because if he had actually like because they ask you when you go to the doctor have you been drinking do you mm-hmm. do x y and z and Although, so you've been drinking. i do have to admit not everyone is super honest with the doctor i know when i was a teenager i was drinking and every time the doctor asked do you drink do you smoke i'd be like nah yeah but you can still <laughs> look at the family history you know and yeah and then the fa- father was an alcoholic which i'm sure talia 
was very open about. Right. I mean, she even told her son about it. Yeah, it's, she even told her son about it. And from the doctors I visited, if there is a if there's a chance of addiction and medication abuse in the family, they'll try and avoid that at all costs. Exactly. Or they will follow up consistently to make sure you're all right. So it does seem like the doctor dropped the ball on this one. Yeah, the doctor dropped the ball. I feel like he was just being lazy. And someone lost their life because of it. Um, And was he convicted? Actually, the jury took his side. He was found not guilty. And Adam Finch actually even sued the doctor for negligence, and him he was awarded he was awarded two million dollars. Wowza! In settlement money. That's I can never imagine or understand the guilt he must feel, because this this story feels very different than the first one. Like the first one had so many extra steps and so many extra issues while this one was the medication the alcoholism the sleepwalking prior it it just seems more believable than the first one yeah i know i actually believe him and it's so sad and he actually talks very openly about all of this he even does public speaking to try and increase awareness about alcoholism and sleep disorders and he's trying to do his best to really like improve and Help. That makes me so sad because him and his girlfriend did not deserve that. And it's not something that he murdered her out of passion or anger or anything like that. No, and this happened in 2003 and his family says he still hasn't moved on. Like, he hasn't dated anyone else even. Well, I mean, could you? Could you? Like, I don't think so, no. It would take me a very, very, very long time in order to be able to be open about that. And then imagine having to tell your partner and explain that them that probably deters a lot of people so it's just easier to not even try to date i guess oh that's heartbreaking cat i know so we have 44 and 32 yeah 44 and 32 32 is still a wild number to me but i believe it because of the alcohol and the drug that he was prescribed that could both lead into that. And because I feel like he didn't make any effort to hide it and he was very open about it too. Right, and he called the cops. And, and there was like documentation. Well, the first one it was, yeah, he hid his clothes with when he was sleepwalking. Oh my God, my brain hurts. My heart hurts. I'm going to have to say I think that one's true, but I'll give my final decision after the third and final story. Yay! So we have the 44 stabs and then the shitty doctor. Yep. And we're on to our next story. It would not be like 76 stabs, I swear. It is not 76 stabs. Although, full disclosure for anyone listening, this story does involve children. So if you don't want to hear that, that's fine. (laughs) We can give you a brief summary at the beginning of the next episode. During the early hours of September 22, 2010, 13-year-old Lexi Mitchell woke up to see her father, Joseph Mitchell, hovering over her wearing a Halloween mask. His hands were around her neck, and in a panic, she elbowed him, and he sauntered out of the room. Thinking that she had dreamt up the whole attack, Lexi went back to sleep. Although she would soon realize this wasn't a dream at all. Does it say what type of mask? I know it's like not important, but I'm trying to visualize it. No, just a Halloween mask. It's like scream mask. We could say scream mask. <laughs> Michael Myers. It could be anything, really. Just like a blank. I mask. picture like a red devil mask for some reason. Oh, really? I was picturing Michael Myers. I don't know though. But after falling back to sleep, she woke up 
to hear her four-year-old brother, Blake Mitchell, screaming. She assumed that Blake was having a nightmare and that her mother, Christine Paralini, would console him and then went back to bed. Only she was woken up a third time to the sound of her 10-year-old brother, Devon Mitchell, screaming, Stop! Get off me! She ran into his bedroom and said, I'm here, Devon. She saw her father looming over Devon with his hands around his mouth. Devon was fighting his dad's hands off of him. Lexi rushed to help. And then their father turned back to Lexi. He put his hands around her mouth and she bit him before running to her parents' room screaming, Mom, Dad is trying to hurt us. I know you said it was about kids, but I didn't realize that she'd be, like, fighting for her siblings. I know. It's intense. And as Lexi ran to get their mom, Devon watched as his father calmly walked into the office and shut the door. Christine Paralini, their mother, asked where their dad was, and Lexi said he's in the office. Christine asked Lexi to grab her brothers and bring them into her room, then went to check on Joseph. She thought he was having an anxiety attack. She desperately tried to get through the office door. She tried sheltering it. She was pounding on the door and yelled, now is not the time. Things are finally looking up. Ooh. Shortly before the attacks started, Christine's father, Pete Perlini, who lived with the family, had arrived home. He said that he got there shortly after midnight. He remembers this because he had an eye surgery scheduled for that morning, and he was thirsty, but he couldn't have water because of the surgery. Wait, he couldn't have water because of an eye surgery? Yeah, when you have surgery, you're not supposed to, like, consume any liquids or food. Right, but for your eye? Yeah, for your eye, too, I guess. <laughs> What are they going to do? Take his fucking eye out? What? I don't know. Um, he remembers... Oh, wait, I already said that. Fuck. Do you think ghosts have sex? Stop. <laughs> <laughs> he was nervous about this surgery and ended up taking a sleeping pill to help him rest. Only he heard the commotion upstairs, so he went to check. He asked Christine if she wanted him to call police. She said no. Wait, she said no over the guy trying to murder her kids? Well, she didn't know that at this point. Yeah, but her daughter literally said, he's hurting us. Maybe she thought that she was just being dramatic, but she said no. Then Lexi walked past them, carrying Blake to Christine's bedroom. Lexi thought that Blake was asleep when she got to the bedroom and gently placed him on her parents' pillow. Don't tell me he was actually... Shortly after Lexi and the boys got to the bedroom, Christine went back to check on them. She immediately thought Blake didn't look right. She said she was scared to even touch him because of how frail he looked. Christine started CPR, trying to desperately to bring baby Blake back, as Pete rushed back downstairs to get his phone. So he was going to call police anyway. Yes. Good. He called 911. He told the 911 operator that he wasn't sure what was going on. He said that there was a man locked in an office and that there was a baby who needed help. They keep referring to Blake as a baby, but he's actually four years old at this time. I mean, that's still... A baby, That's probably like... But when I hear baby, I think of like a literal infant. infant. (laughs) But in their minds, it's like the baby brother, so they probably referred to him as the baby. Yeah, but on the 911 call, even, he he keeps saying, there's a baby here... He's not breathing. There's a man locked in the the office. We don't know what's going on, but we really need help over here. And in the 911 call, you could hear Christine in the background wailing and screaming and crying for her helpless little boy. She brought Blake downstairs to the front room when she heard Pete on the phone with 911. While waiting for EMTs to arrive, Pete actually went to their next-door neighbor's house. Cynthia Ross was a registered nurse at the time, and Cynthia... 
pushed all of her questions to the side and immediately started doing chest compressions on Blake. Her first thought was that Blake must have fallen and injured her himself. She continued doing the chest compressions, determined to help as Christine creamed and cr screamed and cried, Please save my baby. <laughs> I just combined the word screamed and cried. <laughs> sure you did. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was such an unfortunate slip. We have to keep that in, right? Do we, do we edit it out? She screamed and cried, please save my baby. Cynthia continued chest compressions even after the EMTs arrived. They prepped the defibrillator and told Cynthia to continue what she was doing as they tried to shock Blake's heart back to life. What a badass. I know, right? Cynthia saved the... Well, trying to save the day. Did she save the day? Find out. At this point, police asked Christine if anyone else was in the house. She said, yes, my husband Joe, he's in the office. When Cynthia overheard this conversation, she was shocked because she knew Joe used to be an EMT. And she wondered why she was doing chest compressions and he wasn't. Yeah, that is really strange, especially since it's, it's his son, right? Yeah. That is, okay. The sheriff knocked on the office door, but there was no answer. He shouted, if you don't open the door, I'm going to kick it down. Another officer charged upstairs after he heard a loud crashing sound. He found the office door cracked down the middle. The door still wouldn't budge. The two officers pushed on it together. Once they finally forced the door open, they saw Joe Mitchell leaning against the door. His legs were splayed out on the floor and a knife was in his right hand. So was he, like, sitting, so it wasn't like he was trying to block it, or... No, he wasn't trying to block it. He was, like, his lean back kind of slumped. Okay, so it wasn't like a, he was trying to stop him from coming in. Yeah. He was... Okay. And based on the amount of blood, the officers originally thought he was dead until they observed his chest rise and fall as he was breathing. Was he injured? He was. Um, he was then carried out on a stretcher and transported to Duke Hospital where he was treated for self-inflicted wounds. He had three stab wounds in the chest and a slash in his throat. Oh, and he survived that? He survived, yeah. Jesus. Blake was also transported to Duke Hospital. The hospital staff continued to try and revive him until 1.40 a.m. when they pronounced him dead and resuscitation attempts were ceased. The cause of death turned out to be asphyxiation. Joe Mitchell had strangled his four-year-old son, attacked both of his other children, and then stabbed himself three times and slashed his own throat. While Joe was being treated in the hospital, police officers escorted Alexis and Devon Mitchell to a neighbor's house, where they were questioned about the attack. Alexis told police officers about her version of the altercation, which we spoke about at the beginning of the story. With the... Uh, With the Michael Halloween Myers mask. mask, yeah. Yes. And Devon's story matches Alexis's story to a T, although some of the details he recalls are even more bizarre. Devon woke up when with his father's hands around his mouth. Then his father moved his hands down to Devon's neck. His father disappeared into the darkness, and Devon remembers it was so dark he couldn't tell if his father was still in the room or not. Then his father reappeared and continued putting his hands over Devon's mouth and neck. He vanished into the darkness and reappeared a third time with his hands around Devon's neck. Devon tried to force his father's arms off of his neck and screamed, Stop, get off me. Which is when Lexi ran into the room and said, I'm here, Devon, and helped him fight off his father. Can you remind me how old they are? So I know the youngest is four. So Blake is four. Lexi 
is 13 and okay. Devon is 10. Jesus, so so quite young, too. Yeah, they're all very young. I thought that that she was at least a teenager, but she's she's still so young. Yeah, she's 13 years old. Jeez, I thought she was older. Oh, my God. And this is when Lexi ran into the room and said, I'm here, Devon, and helped him fight off his father. Then his father turned his attention to Lexi and started strangling her. She bit him and walked and went to get help. As she went to get help, his father walked over to the light switch. He flipped the switch on and off. He was flashing the lights, and Devon saw his father wearing a yellow coat, which actually belonged to Christine, and a pair of gardening gloves. Weird. Very weird. The officers, neighbors, and friends were left with one question. What led to this attack? What would cause a father to kill his son and then turn a knife on himself? Cynthia, the neighbor who had helped try to revive Blake, stated that it was as if Joseph was possessed. Pete, his father-in-law, said that Joseph must have snapped. You see, Joseph wasn't known to be violent. He was described to be the opposite, in fact. He was calm, well-mannered, and non-confrontational. His wife, Christine, said in the 15 years that they were married, he only raised his voice two to three times. You're probably thinking that's a good thing, but you're wrong. Instead of arguing with Christine, he would ignore her when he was upset. He would ignore her for weeks, sometimes months at a time. Are you serious? Dead serious. Oh my god. And he used this method outside of their marriage, too. He had a bad habit of bottling his problems up and completely disregarding them. One problem in particular that he seemed to be ignoring was the family's increasingly troubling financial issues, which dated back to 2001. Christine said that they would prioritize which bills were most important and the children weren't able to participate in any extracurriculars because they couldn't afford it. And Joseph had actually been unemployed for two years at this point, but he did pick up a few oddball jobs here and there and Christine did some daycare work. But the couple was still barely staying afloat. Yeah, I can imagine. The bank actually foreclosed on the house in September of 2010. Two weeks before the murder of Blake, a letter was left on the door to see if the residents had vacated the property. Interesting. Yes. And then Joe called the bank and he was given two options. One, if the family remained at the house, they would be evicted. Two... If they agreed to leave on their own, they could participate in a cash-for-keys program, meaning the bank would give them money if they vacated the property within 14 days. Oh, wow. Joe, so they were basically homeless at this point. Yeah, basically. And Joe agreed to do the cash-for-keys program, but he was informed that all the adults living in the home needed to sign the agreement. Joseph told the bankers that Pete and Christine were out of town for a couple weeks and set up an appointment for September 18th when they returned to sign the paperwork. But in reality, Pete and Christine weren't out of town at all. They were being lied to by Joe. Joe deceived Christine into believing that he had taken care of the foreclosure and that the bank had agreed to let them stay. This is really interesting. What was his plan? Like, I'm not sure. I think he was just trying to buy time. So he can figure out something? Yes. Um, And then on September 18th, Joe went to the meeting alone. He told the banker that Pete had moved out of the house, which was a lie. He also lied saying that Christine was busy, but she would sign the paperwork at home and then they'd fax it over to the bank. Which is all super sketchy, but I mean, they have no reason to distrust the guy. Well, I guess they're foreclosing on the home, but... Yeah, but at this point, Christine thought that he'd worked it out because he was lying to her about it. 
Um, the morning of September 21st, which if you remember, this is two weeks from the letter. Right. So this is basically the day that they have to be out by. Joe Mitchell took Alexis to her volleyball tournament. Then he made fantasy football trades with his friends. It was a normal day, and he claims he had no plans of hurting himself or his family. Joe may have been treating September 21st like a normal day, but as I said earlier, it happened to be the day that the agreement was due. Meaning his family would soon learn about the truth and how deep their financial issues really were. Joe Mitchell claims he didn't feel immense pressure. pressure. <laughs> he didn't feel like the situation was do or die, like everybody, included the, including the prosecution, made it out to be. In his mind, they still had time because the bank didn't have their signatures yet. And even if the bank did decide to evict, they would have to go through the eviction process, which would buy him and his family more time. Yeah, but that's not going to look good on your record. No, seriously. Although he claims he wasn't feeling the pressure, the pressure was certainly getting to him. Throughout the year of 2010, he was having a difficult time sleeping. He said that he was lucky if he slept one to two hours a night this summer leading up to the murder. I can't even imagine. I have to get at least six hours or I'm dead. I know. I can't even imagine that at all. Like when I was a teenager probably, but now that I'm old, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> now that you're like 64. Exactly. That's not even that old. <laughs> <laughs> he and his wife, Christine, had tried any sleeping aid they could find, but nothing seemed to help Joe. In fact, once he woke up at the hospital, he claimed he had no memory of the attacks. All he remembers is going to bed around 8.30 the night of September 21st. Um, because of his sleeping issues, he would pass out basically whenever he could. The family even had an agreement that if he passed out early, the kids would come in after he had been asleep for a while and gently kiss him goodnight without waking him. Um, the next thing he remembers is waking up at Duke Hospital, but he doesn't remember the day after the attack either. He doesn't remember the 22nd at all. He says he doesn't have memory until the 23rd. He had no memory of the attack or the following day. The psychiatrist who visited Joseph in the hospital evaluated his mental health and questioned him about the days leading up to the assault and murder of his children. He claims he had no homicidal thoughts or suicidal thoughts. He was devoted to his family and he didn't wish any harm on them. The psychiatrist team even pointed out that he didn't seem saddened by the news of his son's death, to which he responded with, everything feels surreal. I don't think I will believe my son is gone fully until I see my family. But he wouldn't see his family again for the next four and a half years, once his trial begun. Well, yeah, I, they're not going to let you see your family after you murdered your son, oh, even yeah. if it was accidental. It's... And I don't know if I mentioned this, but his wife actually did divorce him. Oh, good. Because of this. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he wouldn't see his family again until four and a half years later when his trial began. The state charged him with first-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder and one account of second-degree murder just for good me measure. They basically wanted to cover all their bases. Don't blame them. At trial, the prosecutors tried to say that he had snapped under the pressure of his family's financial struggles. Joseph Mitchell pleaded not guilty, and he argued that he wasn't aware of his actions on September 21st because he was sleepwalking. But that's still insane to go to three of your kids and murder them, or attempt to murder three of them, and then stab himself. Yeah. Like, that's... The, the third, or the second story is the only one that's, like, believable to me, because it had the alcoholism, and the drug, and the... I don't know, this is so bizarre. I know, it's super weird. 
And the defense stated at trial that he had no history of violence, no history of alcohol or drug use, and he didn't use any weapon, which to them proves the murders weren't planned. They also stated that in 87% of filicide cases, the same method of murder is used on the son and the father. Uh, they also stated that there was no evidence of advanced planning and there was no suicide note. Dr. Gorvin, a sleep specialist, testified, testified that Joe suffered from non-REM parasomnia, which is a sleep disorder caused by a disturbance, which causes part of the brain to be kept awake while other parts of the brain are kept asleep. Weird. Individuals who suffer from this disorder engage in non-consequential events until someone tries to wake them up or a loud noise wakes them up. And the violence occurs when these events are interrupted. The defense argued that Pete Perilloni, Perilloni, sorry, made, made noise when he got home and that noise must have been what triggered the tragic events. Because the noise could have been anything from a door opening to the sound of a car. Right, but... He still had three children screaming and trying to get him off of them, right? He did. But a lot of evidence backs up this theory as weird as it is. For example, he was seen wearing his wife's coat and gardening gloves, showing that he started getting ready in his sleep but wasn't fully aware of his actions. He also engaged in repetitive behavior such as flashing the lights, which is a sign of sleepwalking, and even entering the children's room. He would go into a room, exit it, re-enter it. He was doing repetitive behavior. The fin- the oh my gosh, the defense also pointed out that Joseph could have easily killed his children if he decided to. A ten-year-old and a thirteen-year-old wouldn't be able to fight off a conscious man. I guess. Another thing the defense pointed out is that sleepwalkers don't experience pain, and a conscious person would have had a difficult time stabbing themselves repeatedly because their body would have reacted to the pain. And when his daughter bit him in the... Yeah, and when his daughter bit him and when he was elbowed, he just calmly walked off. When Joe was admitted to the hospital, he showed a zero on the pain scale, which is inconsistent with someone who had just stabbed himself. The scale was used as physical evidence that he didn't react to pain. AMS records at the hospital also showed that he had normal vital signs, which is inconsistent with someone who lost consciousness due to blood loss. His EMS records could indicate that he was already unconscious when the injuries occurred. That is so weird. I know. That's what I thought, too. And when the prosecution tried to point out that Joseph had a history of lying, the foreclosure actually turns out wasn't the only thing he had lied about. He also lied to his life his wife for years about his life. He claimed that he grew up in Hawaii and that he went to college in Hawaii and he admitted on the stand that this was a lie. He said that he wanted to impress her because she was the best thing that had ever happened to him and he wanted to make her proud. But in reality, he never went to college. He never grew up in Hawaii. He also stated that he didn't want the life he lived to follow him and he wanted his children to have a better life than he had. Yeah, that turned out great. Yeah, did not work out for him. But the defense wanted to prove he wasn't faking amnesia by using a TOM, which is a test of memory malingering. This test can be used to see if a person is faking memory loss. And Joseph passed the test. Although Dr. Gorvin states it's possible he's faking the amnesia, he finds it unlikely. The question the jury had to answer was, did stress cause Joe to snap or did stress cause Joe to sleepwalk? Ultimately, the jury decided he was not guilty. Christine began hyperventilating 
When the verdict was read and exclaimed, I failed, I couldn't save him and had to be wheeled out of the courthouse. Oh my god, and that was the oldest daughter, right? Or was no, that- Christine's oh, that was the, the mom. mom. That's right, oh my god. And I'm calling that story, oh my gosh, where's the title? The Mass Sleep Strangler. I know you started by saying it involves kids, but it's always hard to hear, even if it is important to talk about because kids do get hurt and there are kids involved in these true crime mysteries. I think I'm going to change my answers. I think this one is true. I think the seven million stab wounds is true. Which one's the seven million? The first one. Oh, the first one? I forgot how many it was already. 66? It's 44. 44. Not 66. 44 stab wounds is true, and I think the second one is a lie. And why is that? I feel like you wouldn't write a story about kids dying. (laughs) That's just me, but maybe you did trip me up. And the first one I feel like is so unbelievable that it has to be true. And that is my reasoning. That's what you said about the boy in the wall. Do not. Do not. (laughs) throw me out like that or do not Mm -mm. that is my reasoning i'm sticking to it all right well we'll find out next time Uh, thank you guys for listening you will find out next week's episode which one was real and if i get a point or not feel free to follow us on our instagram two spooks one light and facebook page as well as our twitter and let us know which story you think is the fake one i hope you guys enjoyed this longer episode (laughs) if you did go ahead and feel free to give us a five-star rating on spotify it does really help us and helps boost us to other people thank you (laughs) thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you next week